Hello, everyone. My name is Strangely Duesberg, and this is Pochmancier. This week is Chapter 2. If you haven't gone back and listened to Chapter 1 yet, I highly recommend you do that first. Pochmancier, a novel by Strangely Duesberg. Chapter 2. Let us leave our new-met friends to their printed words and turn our gaze for a moment upon the battered husk of a life that is our sometime prophet. Fresh from delivering his pronouncement and feeling the satisfaction of advice well dispensed, a job well done, he has made his way out of the shop and down around the corner and into a nearby alley. Almost before leaving sight of the bookshop, his pronouncements of doom have been forgotten. The wind is blowing every witchetty way through the canyons of buildings that make up this city, driving in off an ocean almost insurmountable in its vastness. Beyond this ocean, the man knows to exist only the vaguest notions of countries, wrought of stone and gold and time. Time was, he had visited some of them, but that was a lifetime ago, before he traded his soul in a foolish attempt to win back all he'd thought lost forever. This alley is a good alley. There's an old stage door here, once a point of meeting for theatricals and those seeking them, a sort of portal between the world one touches and the world of wisps and dreams, though such comparisons make him shake and mumble now. Best not to dwell on it. Now it is just a place out of the wind and the rain. The vagrant settles himself into this meager shelter and with an almost fastidious manner pulls a cup, saucer, and thermos out of the mountain of fetid cloth which is his clothing. He balances the cup and saucer on his knee, muttering to himself as he pours a cup of the steaming liquid. Tassa unta tassa tea for me. Perhaps, my darling, we shall dine at three. He stops, staring transfixed down at his hand, which has raised the cup to his mouth in preparation for drinking, its pinky out in an absurd show of gentility. His voice slips into another register many times higher than before. Look at your fingernails, absolutely filthy. For a moment, all is silent, and then he dissolves into giggling, entranced at his own joke. The joy is short-lived, as something else rises in him, a memory of sand and glass and doorways. The cup and saucer are set down with care upon the stoop, the tea undrunk. He raises his hand up to caress the door against which he leans, body racked with deep, silent sobs. After a time, he freezes, his entire body going shock-still at something. A sound. A sound where no sound should come from. A sound inside the theater. He takes a deep breath and immediately regrets it, doubling up in a coughing fit. When he has settled his aching chest, he drinks the tea, now tepid, then rests his head on his knees to contemplate the sound. It had, he decides, the quality of a human voice, as through a repeat machine, of noises etched into waxen tubes or vinyl plates, a faraway, reedy voice, yet unmistakable as something produced by someone. He remembers that voice. It is her voice, one he shall never hear again. He hopes. He gathers himself to leave the spot and venture out once again. Soup, soup, soup. Today, there is a Gratian of the faithful who will be feeding a bowl of warmth and kindness to the less fortunate, but where again? So many things to keep track of and so little time in the day. Something makes him pause and he carefully lowers himself down beside the door and presses his ear against it, straining to once again hear that sound, if only for a moment, 
hand caressing the door as one would an unresponsive lover. Time passes. The world turns beneath him and still he listens, desperate to recapture the sound, that beguiling, terrible, haunting sound. There is nothing. Without moving, the prophet begins to cry. Tears roll down his face, flow out into the alley to join the rivulets of rain, and so back to the great salt that all tears must eventually rejoin. This poor soul is by no means a unique one, in this city or in any other. Such as he are as linked to any place of human congregation as our governments or poorly run public transportation. Each small piece is an essential part of the whole, and try though they might, none can fully banish any part which should make up a city. They simply must be, and always shall be. I could scarce describe for you the texture of every single brick our poor wretch is leaning against, or the grain in the door's moldering wood, but I know you can already see them. The city this story inhabits is not a real city, but it could be, if you care to make it so. It could be your city, your bookstore, your vagabond. Go for a walk. You may do this solely in your mind if you choose, but why not travel out, out into your own city? For it is your mind and not mine which shall bring the true richness to these pages. Are you walking? Good. Look around. What do you see? Streets? People? Buildings? Vehicles? Perhaps. Maybe you're not in a city at all, but a forest. Though what we're looking for is there as well. See the thing. The tree. The bus shelter. The patch of dirt. Now, see behind it. There are, in cities, as in forests, as in our own hearts, hidden countries, secret byways, and forgotten tales. Do you see them? Beneath the usual, there hides the unusual, the secret shops and shadow markets. In daily commerce, there are those who go into an established business, locate the object of their desire, and produce a method of payment agreed to be of equal value, after which they take the object and depart. This is the way of things and has been much the same since the dawn of civilization straightforward and upfront, but it is not always so. A demonstration of this can be found no further afield from our story than the very shop of Mr. Martin de Winters, with whom you are already acquainted. Martin sells, as he would put it, well loved books at well lovable prices, and accepts all major credit cards and any form of bearable currency his bank will let him deposit, at the going exchange rate of course, on which he stays up to date through a weekly phone call to a beloved teller. But it is a well-known secret in some circles that Martin also accepts as payment almost anything he deems to be of value, and his eye is uncanny. Picture that classic trope of the wide-eyed small child, innocent of money to an almost comical degree, shining with pride, attempting to pay with all the money they have in the world. This is the cue for any self-respecting cashier to smile down at the child and then look toward the child's parent to make up the difference. Often, this leads to a lovely little moment of education about money, counting, or arithmetic. Some lesson is learned, capitalism marches on. Not so for Martin. Serious as a reverend, he plucks at his beard and thinks, looking over the collection of items the child's clammy hand has placed upon the counter. A brace of coins with a total value of 20 pennies, a lemon drop, a piece of lint, a chunk of gravel, and three buttons— a value Martin determines to be roughly $2 above the cost of the book. With a nod, he scoops the items into his hand and types figures into his analog cash register, a gift from a distant relation in the Windy City, and produces change for the delighted youngster. 
Cheerful, Martin bids farewell to the puzzled parent and turns to the next matter at hand. Later, when the burned wood placard which hangs on his door has been turned to closed, dreadfully sorry, he will take the items out of the register, less the coins. The lemon drop will be eaten, the lint and gravel discarded. The buttons, however, are an entirely different matter. These will be stored with the utmost care, each in their own minuscule paper envelope. Once catalogued, they will be placed in a secret compartment at the back of one of the card file drawers in Martin's office. There are those who would pay a dear price for a button from a child, freely given. And not only the contents of pockets, there are the contents of the books themselves. Books are one of, if not the best, transportation systems for all manner of ephemera. From old shopping lists and photographs to folding money and love letters, all these and more have fallen out of the books Martin examines and prices with careful consideration before placing them upon his shelves. As with the buttons, a kind of secret economy exists for these two-dimensional treasures. There are purveyors of old banknotes just as there are for buttons. And one should never underestimate the spending habits of the prurient literary enthusiasts who collect love letters. One summer afternoon, Martin discovered a rather compromising pair of photos between the pages of an old historical text being liquidated from the library of a well-known local politician. Being an upstanding citizen and a man of character, Martin immediately contacted the woman and offered to return the photos. She was so astounded that all he wished was to return the photos with no tawdry demands of blackmail that she rewarded him with a generous sum of money. Ever since, Martin has enjoyed a useful connection to local government, with any permitting request he submits seeming to slide through with rather a bit less difficulty than should be, strictly speaking, possible. Such transactions surround you, even if you've never seen them. At this very moment, there are friends sharing subscriptions to websites and quid pro quo advice is being given at parties. Somewhere, a drug dealer is accepting an old bicycle in payment, while just down the road, a pair of children are trading pocket monster cards. A million untraceable dealings are passing hand to hand with no money ever entering the equation. Such is the world below the world, the life behind the life, an idea we shall return to before too long. But now, what of Martin and Eleanor? I myself happened to pass that way on the very afternoon in question and smiled to see them, the well-groomed shopkeeper and the mysterious woman in the oversized coat looking for all the world as if they had been friends for an age and a day. He hands her a book, eyes twinkling, and she, after glancing down at the cover, bursts into peals of laughter. The first flush of any pairing of people, be they friends, lovers, or something a bit harder to define, is always a moment to pause and be astounded by the delicious vagaries of life. Two people, well met and finding many of their interests, if not similar, at least compatible, a man who feels he has been born into the wrong century, and a woman who embodies the word anachronism as if she were the illustration of it in a dictionary. But who is this charming woman, recent of parts unknown and now to be found laughing merrily with a new friend in a forest of ink and words upon bound pages? I am afraid, dear reader, that I am not entirely sure. I do know one thing for certain, though. She is a pochemancier of the highest order. Thank you so much for listening to this week's chapter of Pochemancier. Once again, my name is Strangely Duesberg. You can find out all about me by going to www.strangelyandfriends.com or pochemancier.com. That'll redirect to my website as well. 
Also, feel free to follow me on Instagram or Twitter at I am strangely to find out about shows I'm doing and other things that I have coming up. The music that you can hear playing right now is from my newest album called A Song in My Pocket, which you can find by going to strangely.bandcamp.com. I'm also the co-host of another podcast called Pilot House, where my friend Sarah Shea and I watch old TV pilots we've never seen before and then sort of speculate on where we thought the show was going. And since some of these shows are over 50 years old, it can get really fun. Finally, this whole audiobook recording thing is a new thing for me, but it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. If you're a writer and you have written novels or short stories or nonfiction fiction, whatever, and you would like to have somebody read an audiobook for you, get in touch with me. I would love to do that to sort of add to my audiobook portfolio. You can reach me through either of my websites or my Twitter or Instagram. Thanks so much. We'll see you all next week for Chapter 3, in which we learn a little of the history of the Pockets Men, and one Poshmancier in particular. <laughs>